Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we bow in prayer to praise you for you are the one that we adore. You are our life. Because of you, we've been brought from death to life. By your grace and by your mercy, we're forgiven. So we praise you, wonderful, merciful Savior. And we bow before you to give thanks, Lord. We give you thanks for missionary partners like Dennis and Linda Pausing. We join our hearts to give you thanks for church members like Rob and Nikki Drucktennis, for precious members of the elder board like John Anderson and his precious wife, Judy. We thank you for putting us, knitting us together as the family of God and the, the joy of serving you together. We do pray for <clears throat> our brothers and sisters in Honduras that you would give them endurance of faith and joy in the midst of persecution. And as we look at your word now and as we answer this question, why are so many people or why are so many young people even growing up and leaving the church? Um, it's a question that fills my own heart with uh, regret. And uh, you've already led me to bow before you in repentance for ways that I've contributed to people leaving the church. Open our hearts. Open our hearts. And change us by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The question we're going to answer from God's word this morning is, why do so many people, or specifically even why do so many young people grow up and come here through middle school, high school, and then somewhere in their 20s, or 18 or 19, or in their 20s, they leave the church and they don't come back? I want to answer this from God's word. First, a few vocabulary words. The, the vocabulary doesn't matter, but talking about this in ways that'll be helpful matters. That's why it's worth spending a minute on the vocabulary. Dechurched and unchurched. Someone who's dechurched, they used to go to church, but they quit going. Somebody who's unchurched never went to church. So if there's a, a girl in our ministry who comes up through Awana, comes up through middle school and high school, and she's a part of this church, but somewhere in her early 20s, she leaves, she's dechurched. But if she then has some kids and raises those kids, never bringing them to church, then her kids are unchurched. I read an article last week. You never know what articles to believe or not. This was in the Atlantic. And it said that 40, it was about unchurched and dechurched people. And it said that 40 million Americans have become dechurched in the last 25 years. 40 million. That's more than 10% of the population in the United States of America. I don't know if that's true or not, but whatever it is, it's a high number who are not just unchurched, but who have been dechurched. The other vocabulary word, I don't know if you've seen this one or not, is exvangelical. It's evangelical, but just with an X before the V, exvangelical. These are, <clears throat> in particular, dechurched people who grew up in churches like ours, like we'd say gospel preaching, Bible churches like ours, but they've dropped out. The most famous ones are Christian artists and Christian musicians. I don't mean to pick on musicians, but musicians are super easy to pick on because they're all so quirky and artistic and weird. But there's, there's, more, there's, there's more than one or two uh, Christian or so-called Christian musicians that 
I took my kids, when my kids were teenagers, to their concerts, and now those same musicians uh, are gay-affirming and no longer in any way recognizable as a, you know, historically orthodox Christian. And it happens more than you would think. Unchurched, dechurched, exvangelical. One more word, and then we'll answer the question from First and Second Timothy, why do so many people leave the church? One more word, and that is the word deconstruction. This word means one thing in college campuses and particularly in literary theory and in philosophy. The technical meaning of it is not necessarily germane to this talk this morning, but the term has come to mean a, a critical dismantling or deconstruction of the traditional ways that you've been taught, a critical dismantling of tradition or of traditional modes of thought. Some of this can be good. If, if uh, a child or a teenager has been taught by us things in the name of Christ that Christ doesn't teach and doesn't want them to hold on to, then deconstructing from that is a good thing. If we mean by, and deconstruction doesn't technically mean this, but if we're talking about a process whereby a, a young person of say 13, 14, 15, 16 years old makes sure that his or her faith is his or her own and not merely parroting what their parents said, that's also a very good thing, a very good thing. If we see that some Christians who used to be examples to us have done things that are atrocious or wrong, then we should want to distance ourselves from that. So there can be some good here in this area. But usually deconstruction means just picking apart the things that I no longer want to believe or no longer like about the tradition that I've been taught. And there's, there is, I believe biblically, a fatal flaw with deconstruction. A fatal flaw with deconstruction. And it's these three words. By what standard? By what standard? In other words, if you're going to deconstruct your faith, by what standard will you then construct it? By what standard will you rebuild it? This is why deconstruction, I think, is, is a somewhat dangerous word. The better word is to reform your faith. Typically, to reform the faith means to reform the faith back into the image of what it should and has always been, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. If you're going to reform your faith according to the standard of Scripture, that's a great thing. But as I've looked into this, just about everyone, if not every single one, who's deconstructed, they end up in the same place. They deconstruct their so-called faith and end up just exactly believing all the same lies that the world believes. It usually starts with... I like Jesus, but I've known a lot of Christians who are bad. And I, I would accept both of those things. We should like Jesus, and we've all known a bunch of Christians who have been bad. And then it kind of morphs to, I like Jesus, but I don't think that the church should be as certain as it is about all of these areas of morality. I like Jesus, but why do you insist that my gay friend can't get married to who he or she wants to get married to? I like Jesus, but why do you insist 
that sex is only meant for one man and one woman after the covenant of marriage forever for life. And it goes on to say, it's your certainty about these things is dangerous and it's damaging people. You fundamental Bible Christians are so certain about God's moral teachings and that's dangerous and damaging. In fact, that certainty is so dangerous and damaging that I have to leave. So of course the question, and I don't mean this meanly, I mean this helpfully. The question is, okay, so it's the certainty of Bible churches like ours that you find dangerous. Yes, exactly. And it's the certainty of Bible churches like ours that is prompting you now to leave. Yes, that's right. Well, are you certain? Are you certain that our certainty is dangerous? And how certain are you? And what is your certainty based on when you decide that our certainty is dangerous? And can I tell you, with, a, with an arm on your shoulder, because I want to be your friend, your certainty about the danger of scriptural certainty is in fact more dangerous to you than you'll ever understand. Question it, question it, and come back. I want to answer this question with our Bibles open. So let's look at First and Second Timothy. First and especially Second Timothy is written by the apostle as a plea and a reaction that everyone around Timothy was, what, whatever we'd say, deconstructing or de-churching or bailing out. And First and Second Timothy were in many ways written as a call to Timothy to stay firm in the faith and to help everyone around him stay firm in the faith. Look at First Timothy 1, verses 5 and 6. As we read scripture here, and I look at my notes, we're, we're going to go a few minutes over in this service because that mission report, as encouraging as it was, took a little longer than we planned. If you have to leave right at quarter after, I'm not going to judge you for leaving, but I'll, I'll go a couple minutes over. First uh, Timothy 1, verses 5 and 6. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions. Our goal, church, is verse 5. Love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. A sincere faith in Jesus. And as we make and train disciples of Jesus, part of discipleship is observing all that Jesus has commanded us. So a sincere faith that believes and observes all that Jesus has taught us. And yet, verse 6 tells us, that not everyone will reach this goal. There will be certain persons who swerve away from it. So this is nothing new. Same chapter, 1 Timothy 1, verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. I'm in 118. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Our vision and mission as a church is to make and train disciples of Jesus who make and train disciples of Jesus. That's also the vision of Christian parents, Christian moms and dads, and it's the vision of Christian workers in the church, like the, those that work with our youth, those that work with our kids. We wanna make and train them to keep up their discipleship of Jesus. 
So the image of the shipwreck is telling. We, we bring them here, and, and that, that those little ones are a, a vessel, a ship, and we put in the good truth of Jesus Christ, the good provisions of Jesus Christ, and we give them a map about where with all those truths, they're to go. And then when they turn, whatever it is, 18, 21, they launch out. And some of them shipwreck. They take off from the shore of this church, but they never make it on the voyage that we sent them out for. Some shipwreck. One more question out of this little text is what is the good warfare? You see verse 18? Man, we get awfully confused about spiritual warfare. Uh, Made the prophecies about you, but that by them you may wage the good warfare. To answer the question, what is the good warfare? What is the good warfare? The good warfare is, verse 19, holding on to the faith with a good conscience as opposed to shipwrecking. So to shipwreck is to lose the battle. To win the warfare, it's, it's simpler than you think. It's to hold on to the faith in Jesus Christ and all that he's taught us. That's victory in the warfare. One more text in 1 Timothy. Look at the last chapter, verse, ch- chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 10. Chapter 6, verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a powerful text about holding on to the faith and not wandering away. Did you see the language in verse 10? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through craving that some have wandered away from the faith. The craving makes you wander. This happens to you. You're in your lazy boy. You're watching whatever. I don't even want to know what you watch on TV. I'm not interested. But you are craving a salty snack and a cold drink. And that craving prompts you to wander away from your lazy boy and into the kitchen. Are there any more Fritos? And is there a cold beverage in the fridge? It's the craving that leads to the wandering. What is it here? Craving money. We could say craving worldly things. We could say craving worldly success. That craving makes some wander away from the faith. And then what does it say? It says that they end up piercing themselves with many pangs. This is sad. There is, the, there is the judgment of God, but the disciplining judgment of God is meant for true believers. This says that as unbelievers, they're stabbing themselves. They're stabbing themselves with what they want. So you get the money. So you get the sex that you want. So what it, what it, you get what you want, and you pierce yourself with it. 
It's awful, but it is inevitable. Again, we could ask the question, what is the fight? What is spiritual warfare? Verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. And the answer of what is spiritual warfare and what is successfully fighting the spiritual warfare in this text is simply, verse 12, answer it from the text, taking hold of eternal life and keeping the good confession and keeping it, verse 14, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The goal is simply to make it to the appearing of Jesus either when he parts the sky or when you go to be with him. That's, that's the goal. That's what we want. From 1 Timothy, we can look ahead to 2 Timothy. This is such a, such a huge theme in the epistles of 1 and 2 Timothy. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Notice when he talks about the flame and he talks about not being ashamed the reason, one of the reasons so many people leave the church is because if believing in Jesus is a flame, we live in a world where the sprinklers are on all the time. All the time. And we pay the cable companies and the internet providers extra money so that they can bring the sprinklers into our lives faster and drench us more. It's insidious. Verse six, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. The world will try to quench the frame, the flame. The world will try to heap shame on you. The world will offer, if you deconstruct, you no longer need to be ashamed. But if you hold on to what the Bible teaches and insist upon it, you deserve to be shamed in our culture. You're on the wrong side of history, whatever it is. Still in 2 Timothy chapter 1, look at verse 12. He says, I'm appointed a preacher and an apostle, verse 12, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. That's Jesus. I know whom I've believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Verse 13, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. These steps in 2 Timothy 1, 12 to 14, these steps in 2 Timothy 1, 12 to 14 are so simple and they're so strong. If you want to know how to keep the faith and not shipwreck, this is it. Step number one, keep looking to Jesus. I know whom I have believed. Keep looking to Jesus. Step number two, follow the pattern that you've heard from others. Get good mentors, get good friends, get good teachers and follow the pattern that they set for you. Step three, verse 14, by the Holy Spirit. Oh, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Your flesh, your flesh will lead you to, want to crave the wrong things and to wander away from the faith. It's only by the Spirit of God that you can be protected. Look to Jesus, get good leaders and mentors and teachers and be filled with the Spirit. <clears throat> Let me here address <clears throat> Racine Bible in particular with two 
as I think about it, and my thoughts are only my thoughts, I'm not saying this is dead on biblically, this is an application of biblical principles. I think for us as a church, there are probably <clears throat> two, two primary ways that we can, or, or even to say it more pointedly, that we have helped young people to leave the faith. And I'd say it's these two things. One, we didn't teach them the true gospel. We didn't teach them the true gospel. And if you want a word for what we taught them instead, that word would be moralism. We didn't teach them the true gospel. Instead, we taught them moralism. He says here, in verse 13, to follow the pattern of sound words. He says here in verse 12, to look to Jesus. So what is the true gospel? What is the true gospel? The true gospel is that salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Now, as parents and as Christian leaders in the church, we want our young people to follow Christ in living lives of Christian morality in accord with what Christ has taught. We want to see them obey. We want to see them repent of sin and stay on the right way. This is a good desire. And I would say God wants them to obey and stay on the right moral path. But the true Christian gospel is not merely moral conduct. Sometimes I wonder if we have confused the many efforts we've made in changing our kids' behaviors to, even without meaning to, I wonder if we've made them look at their own behavior more than they look at Christ. I wonder if we've made them look at their own behavior more than they look at Christ. Does Christ want them to look at their behavior? Yes. But does Christ want them to spend 24-7 looking at their behavior? No. He wants them to spend 23-7 looking at him, at him, and then looking within, but only through him. The true gospel, the true gospel is that the most morally upstanding kid who remains a virgin till they're married and never smokes a Marlboro and la 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 la, la but doesn't trust Christ will not be saved, will not be saved. The true Christian gospel insists that no one has ever made it into heaven by their own moral obedience. The true Christian gospel is that everything that we couldn't do, Christ has done. Now, the result of that will be an obedient life. But that's all result. Do not confuse your kids that that's root. That's not root, it's fruit. So I think the first mistake we make is we don't teach them the true gospel. We get wrapped up in moralism. The second mistake that we made, and maybe this is the one that comes to your mind first. If the first one is we didn't teach them the true gospel, we slipped into moralism. The second one is we didn't show them the true gospel by our lives, we slipped into hypocrisy. We didn't show them the true gospel by our lives, we slipped into hypocrisy. In other words, the way that we lived put a match to the way that we taught them to live. And the way that we spoke to them shredded the good words that we tried to share with them from the Bible. 
The Bible's very clear about the damage of hypocrisy in the church. And the Bible's very clear about the damage of hypocrisy or the Bible says exasperation in the life of the father, in particular, of a Christian household. We can't do damage through our hypocritical words and deeds. So we didn't teach them the true gospel moralism. We didn't show them the true gospel by our lives. Hypocrisy is a, a pastoral application of what's happening there in 2 Timothy 1. One more place in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 4, verse 10. This is the big one. This guy's name is an infamous name. Jezebel is infamous. Judas is infamous. This guy is infamous. His name is Demas. Demas. 2 Timothy 4, verse 10. For Demas, in love with his present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. What did Demas do? Because of his love for the present world, he deserted Paul, and we are to presume that he deserted the church, the Christian faith. Just as in 1 Timothy 6.10, it is their craving for money and worldly things that made them wander from the faith. Here, it's love, another word for craving, love. His love of the present world caused him to desert Paul, to no longer want to bear the shame of being an associate of Paul, and to go away from the faith. Why do so many wander away? One answer is right here. They love this present world. That's a huge answer to the question, why do so many leave the church? Because they love the present world. They crave the approval of people that they will see today more than they crave the approval of the God before whom they forever have to deal. They want to fit in with the world around them instead of being prepared to be in Christ forever. There are many answers to the question, and there are many correct answers to the question, why do so many young people leave the church? I'm not exhausting the answers. But I think a huge one is here in verse 10 of chapter four, love for the present world. It's a big reason. And I think it's a, if I could put it this way, 2 Timothy 4.10, the love of this world is a reason behind the reasons. I'm not taking anything else away from the, the danger of not being taught the true gospel, of hypocrisy like we've already been through. But I think 4.10 of 2 Timothy is the reason behind some of the like externally placarded reasons. Really the reason is love of this world. In other words, there are objections and arguments. I, I don't know if I, I, I uh, what about evolution? What about the doctrine of hell? There are like objections and arguments. And maybe those objections and arguments are sincere. Maybe they're not, but there's always, uh, do you believe this? I believe this. All reasoning is motivated reasoning. No one is a brain on a stick. You're a heart that has loves and cravings. All reasoning is motivated reasoning. And even when you're arguing, there's a motive, there's a volitional motive behind the, the rational arguments. Which means that your will and your mind and your heart are all related to each other and influence each other. So we can argue about, well, in Joshua chapter 10, it says the sun stood still. We know that the sun didn't. We could argue about that scientifically. But there, there are volitional and heart reasons why you are fronting that argument in the first place. That's what I mean. And a lot of them is this, love for the present world. Love for the present world. 
I took a little dive. I don't recommend this. I took a little dive into what's it called? TikTok, Instagram, stuff like that for the hashtag exvangelical. Uh, a horrible two and a half hours of my life. I don't recommend it. But I was just, I was just shaking my head at how, um, how flimsy, how tissue paper thin the intellectual arguments are. It's not about that. Like every other one that I saw, it was like, whoa, in the Bible, the same chapter where it says a man should not lie with a man, it says that you can't eat shrimp. Ha! Huh. I'm like, the, the church has been successfully answering that question for over 2,000 years. I could answer it with the story of the blanket and the animals on it from Peter in Acts 10. I could answer it from Jesus in Mark 7. I, I could, there are so many ways to easily answer that question. Could it be that the question is representing something behind the question? The moral and the mental are always hand in hand. That's what I mean by all reasoning is motivated reasoning. The moral and the mental are always hand in hand. Another thing that I saw in, when I did this deep dive on, or this two and a half hour dive on exvangelicals, this was the one bright spot of it. Uh, I don't really understand meme culture, but every now and then meme culture just bullseye something. So this was like, a, I guess, a, a, a Christian guy or girl. And the meme was the... Uh, what's it called? Let's, let's see who this really is, which is a Scooby-Doo meme where, you, you know, Scooby-Doo, the, the, the house is haunted. And so the Scooby-Doo crew comes in and, and they're going to find the ghost. And when they find the ghost, then they rip off the ghost mask and they say, let's see who this really is. And it really is the banker who wanted to buy that property who was just pretending to be the ghost. And so the meme that I saw on th that, let's see who this really is, is the ghost mask was like, I, I'm not sure that I can trust Genesis 1 and 2 vis-a-vis -vis all these scientific arguments about evolution. Or the ghost mask was the same chapter that says man shall not lie with another man says that we can't eat shrimp. So gotcha. Whatever the argument is. And then when the ghost mask was taken off, underneath was I want to sleep with who I want to sleep with. Underneath was, I won't quit smoking pot. Underneath was, I don't want to miss out on worldly approval. 2 Timothy 4.10, in love with this present world. Because I love this present world. So, church, Back to the, the first one that I had out of 1 Timothy. If some young people are frustrated and leave because we didn't teach them the true gospel and instead we gave them some version of moralism, we need to be very careful about that. We need to even be repentant of that if we can go back to them. We need to work hard in our crosswalk ministry, in our middle school and high school ministry. Mothers and fathers, you need to work hard in showing your kids, well, sin is bad. And when you wander out of God's circle of blessing, it is harmful. But the, the way to get into heaven is not to successfully stop sinning every day of your life. The way to get into heaven is to trust Jesus. 
And the second reason that I gave that instead of showing them the true gospel by our words, we hypocritically denied it. We taught them that love is the main thing, but maybe as a dad, your, your love was totally absent or your love was completely conditional. Maybe you even mistreated them in ways more harmful than that. And you need to repent of that. Get back to them if you can and repent to them personally if that's who you sinned against. But what about this third one? If some young people leave because they're in love with the present world, what do we do about that? Well, what we do about that is we, we, try, to, we try to help them to see how often, have I, how often have I pleaded with someone, someone from my own family or someone from this family. You're choosing to sin and your sin is gonna gratify you, but it will never satisfy you. You're choosing to sin and it will feel good this week, but you will regret it forever. Warn them, warn them that this world and all that's in it and all the pleasures of this world are passing away. Who? For an ocean of divine wrath would take a shot glass of pleasure here and now. Plead with sinners that sin gratifies but it'll never satisfy. All the false promises of sin, deconstruction is, is it, we're, we're right back to that serpent in the garden. You reach out your hand and you take that fruit and you will be free. And what he was entering them into was slavery to sin and dust and death. It doesn't, it, it promises freedom and it provides enslavement. That's what all lusts do. That's what all idols do. It promises enlightenment, but it leads to blindness. So one more text in 2 Timothy. Go back to 2 Timothy chapter three. Read 2 Timothy three verses one through five. Is this... 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 is one of those places where you're gonna lick your finger and be like, is the ink still wet here? Was this really written a couple thousand years ago? 2 Timothy 3, 1, understand this. In the last days, there'll come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And I would say again, moms and dads, Christian moms and dads, though we weep if your adult children are now pursuing these things, go back, get on your knees, and say, Jesus, did I show my kids how to do this in some way? Was I ungrateful? Was I brutal? Was I a lover of self? Was I a lover of money? And if you have, you can't go back and change the past, but you can say today, I've repented of that, and you can tell the people who saw you sinning that way that you've repented, and that Jesus has that, that Jesus forgiven you, and you want them to know Jesus too. 
be honest about your failures and, and receive the, the forgiveness of Jesus. But the remedy to this is, look at verse 10. Look at verse 10 of 2 Timothy 3. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Oh, I love that verse, and that verse slays me because I'm pretty good at teaching. And I wish it just said, follow my teaching. But it doesn't. It says I'm accountable to Jesus, not just for my teaching, but for my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, and my steadfastness. It is a weighty, weighty concern being a father, being a mother, being a member of the church who helps make and train disciples, who make and train disciples. And Paul is pleading with Timothy to keep this up. He warns him in verses 11 and 12 that if you follow Jesus, you will be persecuted. And then he says in verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood, there it is, from childhood, You've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. There it is, the true gospel, faith in Christ Jesus, Christ alone through, by grace alone, through faith alone. And then this is the context for the famous verses 16 and 17. Why are we a Bible church? Why do we, when we counsel people, we counsel people with the Bible? Why do we, when we try to answer apologetic arguments, we try to answer them from the Bible? Why is our preaching biblical? Why do our ABFs go through books of the Bible? This is why. Because, verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God's word is light. God's word is liberty. God's word is love. So believe it and share it with those around you who need to hear it. Let's bow together for prayer. I'd ask you if you're able to uh, bow with me for prayer and let me, I just feel a burden to lead you in a, in a pastoral prayer. Heavenly Father, even now in prayer, help us to seek you rightly in the name of Jesus Christ. So church, as you bow for prayer, I'd ask you to take a moment and pray for the perseverance of your own faith. We don't know who's not gonna make it, but some of us aren't gonna make it. Pray for the perseverance of your own faith. Pray that the Holy Spirit would tamp down your flesh. Pray that your love for Jesus, your understanding of Jesus' love for you would deliver you from the love of money or the love of the approval of the world. Take a moment and pray for the perseverance of your own faith.
And then secondly, it's very related. I, I want to give you a moment to pray a prayer of repentance. I, maybe the best thing for me about getting this sermon ready is the way that it's led me to repent as a Christian pastor and a Christian dad of adult kids. I'd encourage you to repent of the ways that the light of God's word has revealed hypocrisy. Pray a prayer of repentance for maybe the ways your anger about behavior made far more of an impression than words of gospel truth to your kids. Jesus forgives. Jesus even restores in miraculous ways. Ask the Lord to help you reach out if there's someone that you have wronged in some of these ways. Ask him to help you reach out with humility and kindness and love. And then thirdly, if you know somebody who has wandered away from the faith, their name has probably popped into your mind about 18 times during this sermon anyway. I just give you a moment to pray for them by name. Whisper their name to the Lord. Say, Heavenly Father, that person whose name is on my heart, you knit them together in their mother's womb and you knew all the days of their life before there was yet one of them. And I'm frightened, God, that if they died today, they would go to a Christless hell forever. I'm pleading with you, Heavenly Father, have mercy on them, convict them of their sin, convert them by the power of your spirit. Heavenly Father, when we pray in the name of Jesus, we know that our sins have been forgiven. And Heavenly Father, when we pray in the name of Jesus, we know that a power greater than our own now owns and holds in his hands these petitions and requests that we have made. So Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we trust that you have heard these requests and that you will answer them in your power and in your glory. And Heavenly Father, as we've repented, as we're able of our sins of hypocrisy, we know that in Christ you've forgiven us. So continue and complete the good work that you've done in us. For Jesus' sake, amen. amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.